Hello and welcome to the back half of the New Statesman's new culture podcast. My name is Kate Mossman. I'm the arts editor of the New Statesman. Who are you? I'm Tom Gatti. I'm the culture editor of the New Statesman. Brill. This week we will be talking to Philip Pullman. We'll be rediscovering the lost cult classic from 25 years ago, Ghostwatch, which aired on BBC One in 1992. And we will have the fourth instalment in our non-anniversary feature, which is the non-anniversary of something that you had forgotten about and didn't care about to begin with. So, 17 years after the conclusion of the epic His Dark Materials trilogy, which became a play and a film, as well as captivating readers young and old, Philip Pullman has returned to the world of Lyra, Demons and Dust in La Belle Sauvage, the first volume of a new trilogy, which begins 10 years before the earlier series. Pullman describes it not as a prequel or a sequel, but an equal, a companion piece. Set in Oxford, it tells the story of a plucky 11-year-old innkeeper's son, Malcolm, and a 15-year-old girl, Alice, and their involvement in a war of espionage and conspiracy being waged between the totalitarian church on one side and a group of scholars and spies devoted to resisting it on the other. Malcolm and Alice find themselves having to protect the six-month-old baby Lyra from some extremely sinister forces as Britain experiences an apocalyptic flood. When I spoke to Philip Pullman down the line from his home in Oxford, I began by asking him when in the past two decades he realised that he wanted to return to Lyra and her world. I suppose when the story got hold of me, and that probably began with a little book called Lyra's Oxford, hmm. which came out in about, I don't know, 2005, something, six, something like that. And I saw there a number of possibilities which excited me, and I sort of put them away and put them on one side while I was doing other books. And I was, what else was I writing? A book called, a fairy tale called The Scarecrow and His Servant. And I did a book about Lee Scoresby and the bear, Yorick Bernison, called Once Upon a Time in the North. And I did, um, oh, I did my book about Jesus, and I did my version of the Grim Tales. So I was busy with all sorts of other things. But meanwhile, that story wouldn't leave me alone. So I was glad about, um, ah, now what are we now, 17... Yeah, about seven or eight years ago, to start working on it properly, and is it and discover how you know, big it was going to be and where it was going to take me? And is it the perhaps it's hard to separate these, but is it the pull of the character or characters, or is it the pull of the world? It's the characters in the world, really. Mm. Um, the characters are intriguing, especially. Uh, I mean, Lyra, as a baby of six, six months old, doesn't have a great deal of agency as they say so it's the characters around her that um, drive the story on and i was very intrigued by them especially by malcolm and alice and i could see that uh, this was the beginning of a story that was going to last a long time in in, in terms of years for the, for them and as it were bridge chronologically bridge his dark materials so it starts 10 years before his dark materials and the next volume, the second in the series, is going to take us 10 years later than his Dark Materials, by which time Lyra will be about 20. But the story that's set in motion in this one will continue then with repercussions and results, consequences that no one except me can foresee. And I can't foresee all of them them either. Well, it's wonderful to meet Malcolm. And it's also wonderful to meet Lyra as a baby. And one of the things that struck me in this book is how much care and attention you pay to her needs as a baby. I don't think I've yeah. 
read so many descriptions of nappy changes in <laughs> in any other work of fiction actually which is which is <laughs> remarkable a silly question perhaps but i wonder was that were you aware as you were writing that that this is something slightly unusual no uh, the same problem and the same necessity came up in an earlier story of mine called the tiger in the well which was set in victorian london it's a book about my victorian heroine sally lockhart and she's sort of on the run in uh, 1878 i think in that story and she has a child who's a bit older than the liar of this book but she has to do the same things nappies have to be changed children have to be fed they have to be kept quiet if they're about to cry at a moment of danger, all that sort of stuff. It struck me as being a very, um, well, a very interesting situation. And I wondered how I would have the resources to deal with it. Fortunately, my characters have far more resources than I do, so they can <laughs> cope with these things. I wanted to ask about the title. It's um, the name of Malcolm has a canoe and, and the book's named after that, La Belle Sauvage. Is there a particular reference for you wrapped up in that name or is it just a phrase that came to you well i've always liked the sound of it and i i knew there was a an old coaching inn and before that uh in the in the early 17th century i think there was an inn called la belle sauvage in london and i think one of the publishing houses i think castles was it castles who used that as their um what do they call it colophon so it's got a long sort of history in terms of London and publishing and storytelling and all that sort of thing. Um, and I just like the sound of it. You might say this is reading a little too much, but thematically it, it seems to, to chime a little with some of the concerns of the book, that it makes one think about the idea of the noble savage and whether civilising influences might be positive or negative in, in different ways. Yes, well, I hope that... that strand of things will come to more prominence in the second and the third book it's incredibly vivid i mean your storytelling is always incredibly vivid the central event of the book the flood is just completely convincing and, and overwhelming and i obviously there's a lot of um, literature and art that that you might have drawn on but is it something that you conjured purely from your imagination or are you drawing on any personal things that you've witnessed there yes um I did witness a flood when I was a small. But when I was, how old was I? Nine, I think, nine or nearly ten. We were living in South Australia. Uh, my stepfather was in the Royal Air Force, and he was posted out there to perform some function with guarding the empire or something. I don't know. But in 1956, when we were there, the Murray-Darling River Basin flooded, and it was the subject of. Um, a lot of newspaper reports and so on at the time. And in fact, of a feature film later on, I think the um, uh, Australian filmmaker Philip Noyce did a film called Newsfront, which featured that flood. It was something that we were taken to see as a big phenomenon. And uh, I remember stepfather put us, put us in the car and drove us out to some safe place from which we could stand and look at this huge flood. And I remember seeing a um, as, as wide as the horizon, a vast mass of grey water swept along and the wind was whipping it into waves, and the power of it was just overwhelming, and I was hugely impressed. That, that sense of being a minute little individual at the edge of this huge force of nature was has ne never left me, and I think that was I was drawing on that memory as much as anything else. Not knowing exactly when you conceived of and wrote of it, um, I'm not sure what else was going on in the world at the time, but obviously reading it now, it does seem to speak to our, our, our current predicament, and the world is different in that it's not the world of 
his dark materials in the book of dust is not perhaps industrialized to, to such a degree but presumably it's a way of you thinking about mankind's relationship with its oh, environment yeah. as well certainly yes yeah i don't talk directly about climate change or anything of that sort but there's sort of hint among the conversations that malcolm overhears in the pub that the local watermen and boat people are aware that the river hasn't been managed very well and there are things that have been left undone that should have been done and all that sort of thing. So there's a, there's a kind of hint of that in it. But uh, again, we're going, to, uh, we're going to see more in the second and third books. That's a very good excuse of mine, I know. But I'm setting the scene, really, in mm. this first book. The trilogy is, is the Book of Dust. Dust being this mysterious particle that is... There's lots to say about it, but essentially it's linked to the idea of consciousness. That's right. How much, how much has writing the, the books been a process of you finding out about this thing? And how much had you sort of engineered by design, as it were, from, from the beginning? The, the consciousness thing is, of course, absolutely fascinating for, and has fascinated human beings for millennia. Are we matter or are we matter and spirit, which is something other than matter, which is doing the consciousness? Or, or where's the consciousness come from? Or what is, are we conscious at all? Some people apparently maintain that we're not actually conscious, we just think we are, which doesn't seem to help very much. So that was one strand that went into the, um, the dust idea. The other was um, the, the notion of dark matter. And I was hoping fervently all the way through the first trilogy that they didn't discover what dark matter was before I finished the damn thing. They still haven't, <laughs> they still haven't found out, so I'm kind of safe on that for the moment. Um, but, yes, I, I, I do read a lot about this, and I read, you know, popular accounts of it in The New Scientist and Scientific American and so on, but I also read what I can, what I can understand of, of philosophy. Galen Strawson is very interesting on this question and he's a proponent of the idea called panpsychism where um he, you know everything is con consciousness is a normal property of matter i find that idea very attractive and so actually did william blick um who spoke about showing you all alive a world where every particle of dust breathes forth its joy so i'm a i'm a thoroughgoing blakeian in that respect and i hope we'll um i hope i'll be able to explore more of this as we go on but you don't want to let a cranky obsession of your own prevent you from telling a story. <laughs> story is the important thing. You, you mentioned Blake, and you wrote a wonderful piece about Blake a few years ago in which you talked about his idea of a twofold vision. Well, in fact, twofold, threefold, and fourfold vision. And I single vision. And single which vision. He, which, which he advises us to keep away from as much as possible. Exactly, yeah. I wonder if you could just say a little bit about his idea of that and, and what it means in terms of your writing and your approach to it. Sure. Um, well, that's, that's a, a, a very um, it's a fundamental idea behind the way I'm approaching this story. Single vision, which Blake condemned, may God us keep from single vision and Newton's sleep. He was very uh, suspicious of the tendency among natural philosophers, I suppose they'd have called it in those days, among scientists we'd say now, to reduce things to, a, to a, an apparent simplicity, which, which leaves no room for imagination, consciousness, emotion, and so on. Twofold vision for Blake was when you can see something not just as it is, but as 
as a, surrounded by a sort of penumbra of one's own imagination. That's a very important part of it. Threefold vision, which he referred to as something that you can uh, achieve in soft Bueller's night. Bueller was his his expression for the um, the world of poetic inspiration. So that's the third stage. Fourfold vision, I'm not quite sure what that is, but it's probably some sort of <laughs> mystical, you know, the, the commentators on Blake say it's a sort of state of mystical ecstasy or something of that sort, which I don't go as far as that. But certainly twofold and threefold vision are familiar to me and I think extremely important. Um, we see single vision not just in um, the work of scientists who try to reduce too much, but also in, of course, in um, the work of people who have the answer. We know what the, the answer is. The answer is the works of Marx. The answer is the Catholic Church. The answer is Brexit. We've got the answer. It's Brexit. Once we leave the European Union, everything will be all right. That's single vision. And, of course, all those things are wrong, inevitably, invariably, completely wrong, because they leave no room for the things that make us truly human, for the imagination, for emotion, for um, affection, for understanding, the, the true understanding of things. Single vision is very deadly. Isn't that the fundamental problem with, you mentioned Brexit there, isn't that a fundamental problem with politics in that it always reverts back to single vision? Yes, it is a perennial problem. And it's the perennial liberal dilemma, really. The most efficient form of government, of course, is a dictatorship. But um, that's not good. It's um, It's inhuman. It doesn't work for human beings. We have to compromise all the time. We have to fudge and compromise and be dis prepare to be disappointed and not quite get there. But it's far better to do it like that than to cling to a, a single burning zealous vision which you're, you're convinced will work for everyone because in order to get to bring that about, you have to kill most of them. Mm. Um, as we've seen in the uh, 20th century more vividly than any time before, except I suppose at the height of the Spanish Inquisition. The discussion around the, the first three books often centred on them as a interrogation of the church yeah i mean that's obviously part of but not all of the story in 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 the first trilogy and something that was obviously concerning you at the time are mm. you what are your concerns now what do you what do you i mean you mentioned brexit what do you what are you worried about now in the world well the single vision kind of covers it because mm. um we're at the mercy of people, politicians and very rich businessmen who know what the answer is. The answer is to give them more money and more power. It's just really a fascinating book called Dark Money by someone called Jane Meyer. I don't know if you know it, about the influence of the Koch brothers and their um, very rich friends on American politics. That is preoccupying me a great deal. The sheer uh, corruption the sheer um, invisibility of this corruption to most voters is a terrifying thing. I hope I'll find some scope for saying something about that as the story progresses. Another concern which comes out very strongly in this book, uh, we have the, obviously we have the magisterium in this book and we have the consistorial court of, of discipline, the sort of mm. sin, the, the most sinister wing perhaps of, of the church establishment. And we see them at, at operation in, in various ways to shut down uh, free debate, free exchange of ideas, particularly at a, at a young age. Is that something we should still be worried about? Have we, are, there, are there aspects of society where you think that is still happening in a, in a concerning way? Well, in a religious sense, not in this country. 
No. The part of our history, of course, when there was a religious body actively involved in searching out heretics and putting them to death. But that was um, a few hundred years ago. We've gone beyond that now. But there are parts of our world today where, of course, we can see the active seeking out of heretics and the putting them to violent and horrible deaths is still going on. So it's a continuing concern. We must be very careful about this. We must, there are still battles to fight, and there will be for a long time to come. Just thinking there about the... My, sorry, my, I can hear you for a second. My dogs are howling in the background. Are they interfering? I can hear them, but, you know, it's... A, well, it's I can a, always move to another room. No, it's, it's absolutely fine. How, how many of them are there? Two. Oh, the, the two, they're quite young. And um, they are attached to my wife, whom they regard as God. <laughs> and if she leaves the room, they sob and cry and fling themselves <laughs> at the door in ecstasies of misery until she reappears. So they're doing that at the moment. But they'll calm down. <laughs> in terms of education, we see in this book, uh, well, one of the central characters, Malcolm Polstead, we see an aspect of his education, which is he's a bright boy. He, he His family is not a particularly bookish family. And he he meets someone, an academic, who begins to lend him books and encourage him to, to think and talk yeah. about books. Was that partly your own experience growing up yes, it in was. terms of discovering reading? It was. Um, at the age of 11, when we moved to North Wales, um, there was a, a little village called Clanbedder uh, near Harlech. There was an old lady in the village who took an interest in me, and, and she opened her library to me, really. She had a lot of books, hundreds and hundreds of books, which I think her husband had um, collected, and he was now dead, and she was sort of um, she, she was just very benevolent. She let me borrow books, and I read all the stories of H.G. Wells and all kinds of other things, um, using her as a public library, really, and I was very grateful for that experience. And that's that's um, kind of part, part of where Hannah Ralph comes from. I couldn't help but, but feel a bit of a unintended or otherwise a kind of contemporary kick in that section where you describe the lack of, of library provision for, for Malcolm because you know obviously that's something we've seen over the past few years is a huge decline both in public libraries and school libraries aren't they? absolutely and it's an absolute it's a complete disgrace and utter shame that a country that calls itself civilized and boasts about how wealthy it is should allow this to happen you know one almost begins to suspect that they're trying to make us all stupid I don't think there's anything as coherent as that is going on but that's its effect is to cut us off from the knowledge of the past uh, and it's a very, very wicked thing, and they should be called to account for it and hung out to dry. How do you think they have been allowed to, to get away with it? Is it the kind of death by a thousand cuts things, uh, people not noticing the, the slow, you know, slow decline? Yeah. If you starve children, they die. If you don't give them medicines for their illnesses, they die. But if you don't give them art, if you don't let them have books, if you don't take them to the theatre and show them pictures and give them music to listen to. They don't die. They just die on the on the inside. They starve in a different way. They're still healthy. They've still got things to do and things to amuse themselves. But there's a part of them which is never satisfied. There's a part of them which will never be fed. They're still hungry and they don't know how. I don't know why, what they're hungry for. I vividly remember my own adolescence and discovering that I had a hunger, uh, an absolute ravenous hunger for visual art. And I didn't know this, and there was no way of satisfying except through books. And fortunately, I was able to get the books. But when you discover in your adolescence the existence of something, when it might be music, it might be paintings, it might be 
woodwork, it might be sport, it might be anything. Something that satisfies a hunger that you didn't know you had. You suddenly realize the extent and the depth of this hunger and the passion for um, satisfying it. And that's that, that's an, an intellectual and emotional adventure like nothing else. We must give children the chance to, um, to, to experience this. And this means surrounding them with books and music and theater and all sorts of things that they're just not getting anymore in order to awaken this hunger and to satisfy it. As I said, they don't die if they don't get it, but they, they, they die in a different way. They die on the inside. While we're talking about the sort of current political and social landscape, I was rereading a, a piece of yours over the weekend. A few years ago, you described Tony Blair as a phosphorescent spirit or, or hobgoblin. And <laughs> I, I, I was wondering um, which mythical creature we might compare Jeremy Corbyn or indeed Theresa May to. Well, I think Theresa May is probably more like a zombie than anything else. She's got so little authority now in her own party. And you can almost see them propping her up with sticks and marching her along because none of them want to take it on. Jeremy Corbyn, well, he's a sort of um, vaguely benevolent nature spirit who can't actually do very much. He's, he's not really interested in... I, I, I feel very angry with him because he could have saved the referendum for the Remain campaign, but he didn't. He didn't seem to lift a finger. Of course, they'll say he did. He did this speech. He did that speech. Rallies and blah. It didn't work. Whatever it was, he didn't do it. And nobody, and he could have, he would have been the best place to raise this up. He didn't make the big point about Europe. It's not, it's not about money. It's not about falling off an economic cliff. It's about belonging to an organization that has kept the peace in Europe for 70 years. The longest period of peace, as far as I know, in, 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 in the whole history of the European continent. An extraordinary achievement, a vastly important project, one which we should have been proud and delighted to be part of. And we just left it just like that because nobody made the argument. The, the only person I heard making the, that argument, staying in, was Sheila Hancock. On the um, eve of the referendum, there was a debate and she was one of the panel and Boris Johnson was there and so on. And she was the one who made that argument for, for staying in Europe. It's a project for peace. And we were part of it. And we should have been proud to be part of it and delighted to be part of it and eager to remain there because of that, because it kept the peace. But Corbyn didn't make it. I've got no time for Corbyn at all. Moving back to the to the novels and, and the story, I wanted to ask, um, we ran a profile of Jack Thorne earlier this year. And, um, I remember, sorry. Um, yeah. We obviously asked him about the work he's doing in, it, in adapting the His Dark Materials trilogy for, for the screen, for the, for the small screen, for the television. Obviously, it's been through, we've had a stage adaptation, we've had a, a cinema adaptation of the, uh, of the first book. Northern Lights, Golden Compass. There's a radio adaptation. A radio adaptation and an audio book. And, and so it's had various different forms. Is this one any different? Are you more or less involved in it? What's your feeling about it? Well, this one will be different because it'll have the time to tell the whole story. That's the big thing. The, the, the best shot doing it so far, I think, has been the National Theatre's um, stage version, which is done as well as it could possibly be done in the live theatre. But even that was six hours long, and, and, and that was all. So they had to leave out a great deal. At least with the television, with, with long-form television, as they call it, we now have the chance to tell long stories at the length they need in order to flourish in all their, um, in all their complexity. Um, I'm a great um, fan of long-form television, and uh, I very, was very happy to, to, to see this taking place. It's taking a while, but then this—it's—it's it's, it's, going to—it's a big, complicated thing. So, um, 
Jack Thorne and everybody else who's working on it are, are beavering away, and I'm I'm, I'm delighted. And are you, do you tend to keep your distance with these projects or have you been well, involved I'm, I'm, in the writing process? I, I have the grand title of executive producer. Very good. But I regard that merely as an excuse to, to keep my distance and interfere when I, when I want to interfere. But I yeah. don't want to interfere with what yeah. they're doing. They're doing very well. You said you're a, you're a fan of this long-form television, which has kind of flourished, I suppose, in the last mm. decade or 15 years or so. Yeah. Um, what for you is the, is the pinnacle of that form? I think it would be hard to better The Sopranos. Mm. Not quite the same, because each Sopranos episode was a kind of separate thing. But the development of the characters, the, the, the development of the background and the situation was, was deep and intricate and involving and constantly gripping and constantly um, surprising. And it was a, a thrilling thing to watch as it, as it unfolded. The Wire, also exceptionally good. Um, there was a thing called Treme, which I greatly enjoyed. It's set in uh, New Orleans after, Kat- after Hurricane Katrina. That too was very good for the same reasons. You can ha- you can show a layer, layers and layers of complexity. Um, r- relationships have time to develop and and falter and re- flourish, uh, and it's um, it's a great form which I'm 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 delighted to welcome into the world of storytelling. Very much looking forward to that. And finally, there's going to be three books in this series and yeah. we've got the first one now which is which is terrific and where are you at with the other two the second one is finished but not edited and in the intervals of uh, talking on skype and doing such things <laughs> at the moment i'm working hard on editing it cutting changing altering all doing all the things you have to do i'm hoping that i'll have the time to get it done in order to to publish the second book next year. If that's possible, I'll be very happy and things will be on course. And then I'll get on with writing the third book. But I I mean, that's as far as we've gone. So we might have a longer wait for the third book. Well, that seems to be the way to do it, doesn't mm, it? Yeah. People had to wait for a longer time for the Amber Spyglass. Indeed, indeed. And we're having to wait a longer time for um, uh, Hilary Mantel's third yes, book. Yes, yeah. But of course, she's uh, been so successful with the first two. No doubt she's Having to administer the consequences, having to written the, to write, having written the first ones. Just very very quickly, yeah. Just very quickly, that um, Hilary Mantel comparison made me think that one of the things that um, Hilary Mantel talked about in reference to her third book is how she got very very involved with her stage adaptation, and mm. I think uh, for her that has fed very much into the way she's writing the third book now. I just wondered. One, you mentioned some of the other uh, books you've written in the intervening period. And another thing you've obviously done is work on a serial comic book, which you've you've just turned into a into a graphic novel. Um, yeah. I just wonder whether that, I know you've worked on visual books before, but I just wonder whether that very different and intensely visual um, way of working has fed at all back into your prose fiction writing. I don't think it has, because I've always worked in a very visual sort of way. I've always wanted to know, for example, as I write each scene, where we are. And I think the reader needs to know where we are, where the light's coming from, who's present, what the room, what sort of impression the room we're in, all that sort of stuff. I like to know that when I'm, when I'm reading, and I think I'd like to supply as much of that as I can without taking it too much time. The story's got to move. But equally, I think I'd like, as Joseph Conrad said, you know, I'd like to make the reader think and feel, of course, but above all, I want to make them see. Mm. So the the f- f- fact that I did a, a, a comic um, was was great fun, 
Um, and I love telling a story in that way, but it hasn't really made any difference to the way I write prose fiction because I've always had that as a, as a prominent part of what I want to do. Yeah, well, it's it's a lovely it's a lovely piece of work, the the adventures of John Blake. Fred Fordham, uh, the artist, did a great job. Yeah, no, it's terrific. I should probably let you get back to either editing volume two or doing more Skype calls. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but thank you so much for for talking to us, Philip. Well, thank you for putting up with the. My incompetence at this end. Finally, we got it to work anyway. We did. We did. Thank you very much, Tom. Thank you. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. So Tom, what were you doing on Halloween night 1992. How old were you? I would have been 11, Kate. Did your parents make you stick to the 9pm watershed with your television habits? Our television habits were very constrained, curtailed. We had to identify the two things we wanted to watch that week in advance (laughs) by circling them in the TV listings. What if they turned out to be bad? That's, that was it. You got your one that, shot, your that's two shots. Tough. Yeah, I suppose if you started it and it was kind of really bad or inappropriate, you might be able to get another go. What kind of things would you have circled? <sighs> I don't know. I mean, there might have been family Sunday viewing that was allowed outside that kind of BBC, you know, warm box of delights, mm-hmm. Narnia, BBC, Sunday afternoon type stuff. But yeah, I certainly wouldn't have been up at 9.30 watching this program Mm. which I didn't even know about until you started drip feeding bits of information to me about it over the past six months. (laughs) Well people forget about well I I guess we probably don't forget about television in 1992 which is a very intrusive charismatic force it was like the other person in the room and there was a strange sense that if something was on tv that you didn't like 
you didn't necessarily turn it off. It was it was just there. And children who did not have your your strict rules on the watershed, many many children were allowed because it's Halloween night to stay up and watch this thing, which looked really fun and really cozy because it had Sarah Green from the uh, the children's BBC broom cupboard on it. It had trusted skeptic Michael Parkinson. It was a, a haunted house surveillance documentary. It appeared, to all intents and purposes, to be live. It had all the kind of um, comforting jargon of crime watch in it, you know, make sure that you, if this, if you're in any way disturbed by the content of this film, remember these mm. things are very rare indeed. The children should not be up, all these things. Mm. And this was Ghost Watch, and it was put out between 9.25 and 11. And it traumatized a, an entire generation of children. I did watch it at the time, and so did my best friend from school who remembers subliminal sightings of the poltergeist in the house, whose name was Pipes, because he manifested himself by banging in the plumbing system. She remembers the feed completely collapsing, the film feed turning to black, the sound failing, and then she was basically sent to bed before a, a happy resolution. Of course, there wasn't a happy resolution for anybody who saw Ghostwatch. At the end of the film, the poltergeist kind of enters the machine, it enters the very technology of the television programme, and the studio, Studio 6 at Television Centre, appears to collapse, leaving Michael Parkinson, who is the presenter, just mumbling to himself in the dark. The end is a, sort of like a Beckett play or something. It's just like, <laughs> it's like Breath by Beckett. It's just Parkinson wandering around this sort of destroyed landscape, mumbling. Is, is anyone is anyone listening? Is anyone yeah. even listening? Everyone's, everyone's, everyone's gone. gone. I mean, the, the what's interesting to me is that you just watched this last night yeah. for the first time. Yeah. So what were your impressions of this this cult classic? I found it by turns very amusing, slightly bewildering, genuinely frightening at one or two points. And sort of ultimately, you know, towards the end, it has become totally ludicrous. <laughs> but I could see, which is one thing you tease out in the, the long piece you've written about it in this week's magazine... I could see what was so revolutionary about it because it's brilliantly accurate takeoff of that kind of documentary news reality hybrid program with like constant they're like constantly cutting from one studio to another you've got who is it that you've got outside you've got Craig Charles mm -hmm. out doing Vox Pops you've got Sarah Green in the house you've got Parkinson in the studio you've got pointless expert in America as well as the expert in you know, <laughs> Emilio Silvestre yeah Emilio Silvestre <laughs> in New York and now we go to New York so just lots of kind of pointless cutting around which was it's kind of dull but I really I really enjoyed that it was sort of rolling news wasn't yeah. it it was dead yeah. air and it, it had the effect of um the most one of the most frightening things about about ghost watch and this is kind of evidenced by the um, reports of the British Medical Journal about no fewer than I think seven children who were reported as having post-traumatic stress disorder from this film and also a tragic incident of course of a, of a suicide which is why the BBC have disowned it and have never shown it since is that it was the domestic setting and the fact that not very much happened for a long time mm. which frightened people. It was a normal two-up-two-down council house in Northolt. It was a normal-looking family. And it was a very, very cosy feeling of Sarah Green being ever so buoyant, doing apple bobbing, and Craig Charles making fun of the entire thing. Yeah. And, of course, um, Michael Parkinson, who really carries it now, I mean, hit this very bizarre register, which had never been seen on TV before, which was you had a trusted figure from current affairs narrating complete falsehood as fact to start off with, yeah. but doing it with scepticism, mm. which made you think the whole thing was probably crap, which of course it then turned out not to be. Mm. 
So it was a very, very odd destabilizing thing. And it was that playing with genre and playing with truth that frightened the children and the parents, in fact, just as much as any sighting of some poltergeist that you got momentarily in a window. Were you frightened by it at the time? I mean, do you remember? I think that that's, that's what's interesting. I remember a feeling of unease about it. I knew at the end that it couldn't be real. Right. I remember my dad being in the room and saying, this is, ah, uh, this is nonsense, you know. But there were little punctuations of fear along the way, partly in, in sort of like little oral histories that the presenters themselves would tell on air to fill time. Yeah. Um, so it was a very, it was a kind of, yeah, destabilizing thing to watch, even if you knew it couldn't be real. And that just says a lot really about how, how much we trusted in TV at the time. So little, there was so little media I mean, it wouldn't work now because you'd have social media saying immediately, everybody tweeting, saying this is absolutely nonsense. Yeah. You know? what, were they clearly setting out to present it as real? This is the one of the, the things I tried to tease out in the piece is that um, the three brilliant creative minds who created this, uh, Stephen Volk, Leslie Manning and Ruth Baumgarten, the writer, director and producer, claimed this was not a hoax. We didn't want to hoax the public. But creatively... This whole conceit could only work if they made it look as real as possible. So for them beavering away on it for two or three months, putting all their energy into it, it would have been a failure of their idea if they hadn't made it look as real as possible. So on a purely artistic level, it had to look as real as possible. What happened was that there was a much smaller chain of command at the BBC in those days. Leslie says at one point in this piece that the maverick producer within it was in its element. You weren't having your neck breathed down. And they were sort of left to get on with it. And basically nobody imagined that it was going to be taken seriously because they were too close to it. You know, it's a classic thing. I mean, if, you, if you're if you trying to write comedy, something's only funny once. If you're making horror, something's only scary once. So you imagine the tension of sort of, oh, are people actually going to find this frightening? Of course not. Then it goes out and then this huge shitstorm happens with the tabloids the next day and, and rolled on for weeks and weeks. I mean, you know, a lot of people have heard of this thing, having never even seen it. Mm. And the kind of weeks of shitstorm after it, I mean, that hasn't gone away, has it? The BBC have still never shown it again. And we're coming up to the 25th anniversary, which is why we're doing this piece and why we're talking about it. But there's going to be no, you know, special BBC screening or special edition DVD or anything, is No, there? it was released on DVD in 2002 by the BFI, which was very upset the parents of Martin Denham, the young man who committed suicide a lot, obviously, because, you know, they didn't want it out at all. The BFI DVD is now not being made anymore. It is available on Amazon and it is being shown at the Genesis Cinema in London on um, Halloween night this year. So there's a public screening mm. and Q&A. And that happens fairly regularly. I mean, there's a mm. huge cult around this thing. There, there are people online who have counted multiple sightings of the ghost pipes from these tiny little bits of footage and the the thing it what happened like the funny thing is it was a load of children who saw it when they were our age who then were able to go back and get the dvd and then they've just kind of pounced on this thing Mm. and created this whole world around it illustrations like you know spin-off fan fiction and everything so it was a lost product. It was a ghost product itself. And it's not really anymore. I mean, people have talked about it for a long time, but my intention with this piece was to really kind of tell a proper oral history of exactly what happened and what inspired it as well, because a lot of it was inspired by frightening things they started to see in terms of the coverage of the Gulf War, the hostage situation in Beirut, and the sense that they had that the news was manipulating the truth and that you were being shown things even on the BBC uh, in terms of burning oil wells and marching troops to kind of affect you emotionally rather than to necessarily suggest what was going on Mm. so that's really the background to it for them it came from a political perspective 
and, and a period in which what had previously been fairly clear-cut genre distinctions between factual and, and fictional broadcasting were being merged, weren't they? So as you say, the, the news coverage that gets this kind of emotive elements, but also dramatic reconstructions in documentaries that are pushing things quite far from the truth. Things like, you know, you mentioned things like Crime Watch, yeah. um, where you get a kind of added layer of sort of commentary. Which um, you look back on Crime Watch now and it's horribly gratuitous. Yeah. I mean, Nick Ross does not see need to say at the end, don't have nightmares. Yeah. Cause that, I mean, it was I used to watch it voyeuristically as a child because it scared me when you had like the freaky blurred photo fits of the different mouths of the, of the mm. kind of, you know, murderers and rapists coming up on the screen at the end. And it was really interesting thinking about that now with hindsight. Yes, those dramatic reconstructions were not necessary the little warning at the end not to have nightmares were not necessary the whole program was not really necessary although I think it's still on which is very very weird and the other one was um, 999 the Michael Burke show which I remember you know did show people having being hit by speedboats and the water turning red and stuff and then it would be like again the patrician sane voice saying um well, of course, you know, it was a happy resolution. <laughs> what is the actual purpose of this program? What is the function of this program? It's to frighten people. What I enjoyed about watching it now was the two extremes of it. So the moments that are genuinely frightening and the moments that are genuinely hilarious. And in both those sides of it, I think, point up the ways in which it was very ahead of its time and has influenced a lot of things that have come after it. So the bits that were really scary for me were the things that felt like Blair Witch Project ahead of its time. So you've got these handheld cameras in the house. At one point, a door opens, you see a flash of figure, the camera drops to the floor, pictures start cutting out, there's noise, there's interference, and it's very abrupt and it's really, really effective. And of course, that's something that's now used, you know, since Blair Witch has been used used all over the place. And then I also thought the way that they kind of, it's quite subtly done, but they skewer the the nonsensical language around these kind of shows, which, you know, as you know, I'm a huge fan of Chris Morris and, mm. and uh, Brass Eye and the Day to Day and those programmes. And there were there were things out of this that I thought could have been straight from from those shows. It was it was it was before Chris Morris, but things like this New York expert which you which we mentioned, he has this ludicrous acronym for his organization. He's Psychop. The scientific investigation of claims of the paranormal. <laughs> so Brass Eye has all these you know like fucked and bombed <laughs> and uh, gefaff wisp like all these organizations that have stupid acronyms and then the presenters just um i know most of this is scripted but um they just come out with these brilliant sort of surreal moments so it's sort of sarah green having wiped a light fitting and the paranormal experts like sarah smell the hanky <laughs> smell the hanky sarah <laughs> and she's touching her earpiece yeah. going you want me to smell the hanky <laughs> And then they're talking about the scientific investigations and uh, there's, there's a pool of water on the floor. And it's, how will, you, how will you test this? Well, we'll test the water hardness and match it to the tap water. Yes, I remember <laughs> that when I watched it recently. I love there was a couple of very powerful, on the other end of the spectrum, powerful dramatic reversals in it. One of which being, and this really frightened me as a kid, a moment when it appears that the eldest child in the haunted house is faking the entire yes, thing. Yeah. There's just a shot of her banging um, a radiator with a mallet and looking up at the camera. And um, the director entered into a lot of correspondence with eight-year-old children after this. who were, Thousands of letters were sent to the BBC and to her. And I thought it was really interesting. I was looking through the drawings that the children sent in, some of which appear in the piece. And one of them, it just says, I was frightened when Suzanne was banging the radiator with the hammer. 
And you just think that's really good horror because there's nothing scary about that at all. But it was the it was the twist of expectations. Mm. It was the confusion. And I remember to this day just thinking, what on earth was that about? Like, so the whole thing's made up, and the, the, the idea that it was a hoax was actually more frightening than it was real because you were following this truth you were you were trusting in the presenters and suddenly the whole thing just seemed to fall apart you're right that is a masterstroke it's an amazing double bluff that and the fact that parkinson comes out and says this is all a hoax mm. then just just makes it so much he says so it with such potent. scorn yeah. he says to the in-house parapsychologist yeah. you know we came here to catch a ghost and what we've captured is the remarkable instance of a hoax yeah. and it's like you expect him to say Pull this now, credits, please. And then, of course, inbuilt into the language, there is these little moments. He goes, we were going to be moving on to the next programme, but actually things are heating up, so we're not going to be moving on to match of the day. <laughs> so again, you're thinking, this is real, this is real. Yeah. The whole BBC scheduling is constructing itself around this. Of course, the entire thing was bollocks. There were, I suppose, some good clues in there to show you that it isn't real, you know, the picture above the mantelpiece is just a white sheet ghost with, with black eyes, which just <laughs> suggests ghost. that the whole thing is a massive joke. Yeah. And then again, some of the lines, you know, we asked the army to test this for us and they came back and, you know, like, what? The army are well, now the involved. Army in this. some broken pots. It was broken pots, yeah, crockery. <laughs> the, the, the poltergeist crockery that the army just randomly tested. And then when they, um, they hear the girl uh, speaking with a kind of exorcist-type possession and... We even filled her mouth with coloured water and sealed her lips shut with tape. <laughs> I mean, yeah. And you just suck it up, don't yeah, you? Because yeah. it's jargon. You go, okay, yes, of course, of course. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, in conclusion, it's probably, in a way, it's probably a good thing for this for this film that it is a cult classic because it will continue to be, it'll continue to give people this frisson. And if it was repeated every Halloween on the BBC, I mean, it's, it is 1992. It, it looks yeah, 1992. Dated, yeah. Yeah. So, you know... It, it's every cloud has a similar line yeah. in the fact that it's been buried is it kind of keeps it alive in a funny sort of way absolutely so if you if you want you can go along and see this at the genesis pick up the dvd and let me or kate know if you've got any strong memories of of ghost watch i'm at tom underscore gatty or at ns underscore podcasts And now for this week's non-aversary, I've been digging in the internet archives and it seems to be 32 years <laughs> since the first ever CD single, a format that was born with Brothers in Arms by Dar Straits. Um, and died when Woolworths died, I imagine. <laughs> I think quite possibly so. Yeah, it's certainly, it's, at the moment it limps on with the odd charity single and X Factor release. But yes, 14th of October 1985, Brothers in Arms by Dar Straits, a genre that I suppose one might characterise as smooth war. Uh, <laughs> smooth what? Smooth war. War? That's what that song, that's what that song evokes for me. I was listening to it earlier today. Yacht war. <laughs> Yacht war. Well, it's kind of, it's kind of Knopfler's gentle war. Yeah. Uh, I was surprised to see that the, this, very first CD single is going for the huge sum of £3.99 on eBay today. Oh, is it really? <laughs> <laughs> it says rare, rare CD single, £3.99. Woolworths was where I bought all my CD singles. I don't know about you. They feel to n now to me that like in this environmentally conscious age, like such a waste of material. I know. For so few seconds of music, you have this great big wobbly. So these are not to be confused rather with the um, CD mini CD single. 
you remember those tiny Whoa. little 3.1 inch things that were designed to fit in your shirt pocket which is really stupid and specific yeah like you just go around with a, like a checked shirt with a little pocket with like 15 of these little singles in yeah it. but I don't think I ever had any of those they didn't last long but no. they were an amazing gimmick they were like um, beautiful little tiny stupid things mm. that you put inside your discman right no, these were the clunky sort of easily cracked plastic casing and CD singles, which if you were, you know, my whole thing was to be canny and you have to get, you have to go into Woolworths on sort of the day it comes out to try and get it at 99p <laughs> because once it's in the charts, it goes up to 399 Wow, is that true? Yeah, and then and then if you wait long enough and there are still some left, you might get it in the bargain bin again down to 199 or 99 Do you remember what one you bought? What was the first one you bought? Ooh, I know what the first single I bought was, but it was um, it was a vinyl single. What and was I that? I think it was from the bargain bin at, at Woolworths as well. Do you know what? I think it was Brian Adams. Ah! yeah. The big Robin Hood song. Yeah. Mine was um, the double A side, the chicken song, and Never Met a Nice South African by Spitting Image. I was five, four, I think. I don't know how I managed to buy it. How you cobbled the money together. <laughs> you mentioned B-sides. I mean, the, I suppose the interesting thing about the CD single was that it became this very bloated format. So with each single, you could get up to four tracks. And at the height of the kind of chart wars around Britpop, the chart company would allow you up to four different formats. So something like when Country House was up against Roll With It, Country House was available on two separate CDs. So you had eight, eight possible tracks. So mm. you'd encourage fans to buy the same, the same CD twice, basically. Amp up your sales that way. And as a... It also played to sort of slightly geeky completists like me. Like if, you know, I bought a single and it would have a slot for the second disc, even if I didn't love it, I kind of feel like I needed to needed to have that. And they're not without value now. It's not that they're completely worthless. I was looking up to see what the most valuable CD single slash EPs are. And there's a pressing of the Slim, pressing, can you say that? Slim Shady EP on CD is worth exactly £9,837 now. That really I don't know seems why. like wishful thinking. What's it, what's it called? I think it? There was, it was a particular version of which there were like 500 made. And there's a Coldplay one from 1998 that's worth 2000 as well. So get digging. Do you know what? I have got a very, very early Coldplay single. <gasps> yeah, but I've what's it up. It's, not, it's called Shiver. No, it's not that one. No. It's one of the other my single word my titles My one isn't, my one isn't worth anything. <laughs> So, happy 32nd birthday CD single. Thank you for downloading the Back Half podcast. We encourage you to purchase the New Statesman magazine where you can read much more about Ghostwatch and about Philip Pullman's new book. And we leave you, as always, with the ragged, acid, post-jazz soundtrack of Pistol Jazz. Pistol Jazz.